We invite you to turn now again to Romans chapter 12 and the first two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, I pray that you would help us today to be able to prove what your will is, that you would show us that it is good and acceptable and perfect, that you would even this morning as we talk about renewing our minds, that you would, while we talk about it, actually do it, renew our minds and teach us wonderful things from your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have spent two weeks so far in Romans 12, verse 1. Uh, and this morning we're going to spend a whole another sermon in Romans 12, verse 2. Uh, I realize we're moving quite slowly. We're moving uh, in a way at an archaeologist's pace. Uh, you know how archaeologists work. They don't dig with shovels uh, or pickaxes. They dig very slowly and meticulously with brushes and small chisels and so on. And that's the pace at which we've been moving by design. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to take up the shovels and pick up the pace uh, just a bit. But I just remind you there's a reason why archaeologists dig with brushes rather than with shovels, uh, because they're handling very precious artifacts. They don't want to miss anything as they work their way through. They don't want to damage anything as they work their way through. They want to get it all, and they want to get it right. And we need to work similarly um, with the scriptures, particularly with verses that are as vital and as important as Romans 12, 1 and 2 are. We're, of course, not this morning working with artifacts that we're going to put into a museum. We're actually working with something, something infinitely more precious, namely the Word of God. And we're working with two verses in the Word of God that are really key for the rest of the book of Romans and really key for all of our understanding of how we are to live the Christian life. And so we don't want to miss anything in these two verses, and we don't want to do damage to what they say by hurrying over them too quickly. So we've been moving slow. And as I told you before, this is one of the great how-to chapters in the Bible, Romans 12. One of the great chapters that tells us how we are to go about living the Christian life. And verses 1 and 2 are so important because they are the foundation stone for the rest of the chapter. And really for the rest of the book, as I said. And these verses actually are so rich and so full that even if we didn't have the rest of the chapter, or even if we weren't going to go on and study the rest of the chapter, we could do quite well living the Christian life by just taking these two verses and really digging in and understanding what they mean and then putting them into practice. This is one of the most profound and beautiful summaries of the Christian life that we have in all the Bible. If you think of the Christian life as a wheel with all sorts of spokes going out in different directions, there are lots of things that we're to do in the Christian life, right? And so you have a wheel, and one spoke is how are we supposed to speak, and another is how are we supposed to love, and another is what are we supposed to do with our spiritual gifts, and another is how do we deny ourselves and take up our cross. And all of these various things that we are to do living out the Christian life well, if that's true, then verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 really might be like the hub of that wheel. 
from which all of the various activities of the Christian life stem. If we get these verses and how they teach us the motivation for living the Christian life and where the power comes from, the mercies of God in Jesus, and then what we're to do with our bodies and minds, if we can get these two verses, all the other spokes of the Christian life will fit properly into place. Almost everything that we could say about Christian living and how we are to be like Christ boils down to what Paul says here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so we want to excavate it with great care. We want to get it all, and we want to get it right. And so we're going to move again slowly today, um, and I want to just read verses 1 and 2 to you one more time, and we will center our attention this morning on verse 2. So dig in with me, get your brushes ready, and we will try to do this very carefully and thoughtfully and helpfully as we go. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let me just begin this morning by pointing out that Paul mentions here two kinds of spiritual formation. He's talking about being formed, and he mentions two ways that we can be formed in our spiritual life. We can either be, there at the beginning of the verse, conformed, or we can be transformed. Conformed to this world, or transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now just think about those two words for a minute, conformed and transformed. Which is easier? Is it easier to be conformed, or is it easier to be transformed? Well, it's always easier to be conformed, isn't it? It's always easier, no matter what realm you're talking about, to keep going with the pattern and going with the status quo than to do something completely different, isn't it? Whether you're talking about peer pressure or other things, peer pressure, it's always easier to fit in with everybody else than to stand out and be different, isn't it? And even oftentimes we talk about peer pressure with teenagers. When teenagers are standing out and being different, they're often being different as they copy someone else who is different, and so they're really not different at all, right? If they decide they're going to start wearing different kinds of clothes, it's because somebody else is already doing that. And so it's easy just to fall in line with someone. What about Legos? I like to work with Legos with the boys. You know what I always do? I always build the same thing, churches and castles. You can ask the kids, what color of Legos is dad always using? Always gray, never anything else. I'm always building the same thing. And part of it is because I like those things. Part of it is because I'm afraid to try to build an airplane. I don't know if I could do it. Just from scratch. I just stay, I conform. I stay with my pattern. Maybe you could think about pottery. If you do pottery, it's easy to keep making the same vases and the same pictures, just different sizes and different colors, but the same pattern over and over again than it is to try to learn how to make a punch bowl. And anything that you can think of in life, if you're in a pattern and a habit, it's easier to just keep doing what the pattern is or to keep being like everyone else is than to be different and to change course. It's always easier to be conformed than it is to be transformed. It's always easier to keep doing what we've always done and to stay in the accepted pattern than it is to break out. There are many realms, of course, where it might be wise to keep doing the same thing. Sometimes it's not good to reinvent the wheel But what Paul is saying is, in the Christian life, it's not wise to just keep after all the old ways. 
It's not wise to stay with the status quo in the Christian life. The Christian life is always carrying us against the status quo. That's what he's saying here. The Christian life is always carrying us against the wind and against the pattern of this world. We have to do things differently from other people if we're going to live the Christian life. The Christian life is about constantly taking this lump of clay and reshaping it and reworking it and reshaping it and reforming it. We're talking about forming And so maybe the picture, the best picture, is the potter with his clay. The Christian life is about not conforming and making the same thing with the clay over and over, but making something different, something new, transforming the clay. The Christian life is a constant process of throwing away old molds and being formed in a new way, being transformed, not conformed. And why is that? Why do we need to be transformed and constantly be transformed not just once but over and over again continue reshaping why well because by nature and by culture paul is saying here we're all molded after the pattern of this world we all come into this world sinful and then we live in this world and the culture around us whether that culture is our family or our classmates or the school system or our boss or our neighbors or what's on the television or whatever it is Our culture also fits us into its mold. The people around you, if they're not the people of God, are never going to make you more godly. They're going to bring you to be more like the mold that the world is in. We're all molded, Paul says, after the pattern of this world, this evil age, this fallen system of thinking and doing that we all live in and that we all breathe in every day. We come out of our mother's wombs with bad habits And until we come to Christ, and often even after we come to Christ, we're picking up bad habits all the time from those around us, and we're passing ours off to them as well. So we're constantly being molded after. We're constantly being conformed to the pattern of this world. And so our little lumps of clay have all sorts of bubbles and distortions and imperfections in them that we may not even realize are there because everyone else has the same imperfections and the same distortions that we have. And so we look at ourselves and we think we're pretty normal. But what Paul is saying is, look at yourselves and if you're normal compared to this world, then be transformed. You don't want to be and look like everyone else. You want to be different for Christ's sake. Now, These things don't change overnight when we become Christians, do they? You don't become a Christian and come out of the the fire a fully formed vessel the moment you believe, do you? No, it takes time. And what God does is he doesn't just make you into a new vessel, voila, overnight. What he does is he takes the old lump of clay with all the imperfections that are there and all the places where sin is bubbling up And that lump of clay that is well on its way to being misshapen, and he picks that lump of clay up and he drops it back on his potter's wheel and he begins reworking it into a vastly different vessel. And we need to note well in this verse that Paul does say that it is God who does the transforming. It's God who does the transforming. He doesn't say, and do not be conformed to this world, but transform yourself He says, but be transformed. That word be is important. It lets us know that someone else is acting upon us. When God says be transformed, he's saying you need to put yourself in a position where someone else can do the work of transformation, where someone else can act upon the clay. 
Now, this is described marvelously, incidentally, in in Jeremiah 18. Let me just turn there and read to you uh, this little word picture that God gave to Jeremiah. The word which came to Jeremiah from the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 18.1, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. You're in my hand. God will do the transforming. Be transformed. Let someone else transform you. And God is more than capable of doing it, of putting you on his wheel and spinning you and taking out all the imperfections over the course of your life and being able to present you holy and blameless and without reproach at the day of the Lord Jesus. God is transforming us. That's good news. We're not alone in this project of being transformed. We don't have to invent our own shape and figure it out ourselves, what we're supposed to be. There is a pattern potter and he has a pattern in place already and he is able to form you into that pattern so the potter is the one doing the transforming but the commentator uh, Hendrickson William Hendrickson points out well that that doesn't mean that we're totally passive in verse 2 either verse 2 says be transformed in other words someone is going to transform you but be transformed is also a command isn't it so be transformed means Someone else is going to transform you, but your responsibility is to allow that to happen. Do you see that? He doesn't say transform yourself. That would be one thing. That would be a command and you're solely responsible. He says someone else will transform you, but your job is to be transformed, to allow that to happen. So you're not passive in this process. The potter does the shaping. Yes. He has the pattern. Yes. He's the only one that can make you after the image of his son. Yes. But you are commanded to let him do it. You must submit your clay to the potter. You must be flexible on his wheel. You must stop allowing this world to shape you. And you must stop clinging to the old patterns, perhaps that you've learned from childhood, and allow the potter to radically rework your life. And so must I. You willing to do that? Are you willing for God to come into your life and do with you whatever he wants to do with your character and your patterns and your time and your money and so on? You're willing to say, I am the clay, you are the potter. You can do whatever you want with me. That's what Paul is saying. Stop going the way that you've always gone. Stop going the way that's easy to go. Stop being conformed, but put yourself on the wheel and allow God to transform you and to make you into whatever he sees fit. And we saw that in Jeremiah 18, didn't we? The potter put the thing on the wheel and he made a vessel as he saw fit. And we need to be willing for God to do the same for us. Be transformed, he says. Throw aside the old molds and allow the potter to fit you into a new one. Now let me just go a layer deeper in application and ask you, what are the old molds for you? What are the old patterns in your life? The things that are just so easy to keep doing, but you know God wants you to stop. For some of us, they're obviously sinful things. Some of us have old patterns of lust or outbursts of anger. Or maybe it's theft or putting certain substances into your body that you shouldn't. And if that's the case for you, Paul is saying, don't be conformed. Don't keep doing that. Smash the mold. 
and allow God to create a new one. He can do it. Remember Jeremiah? Can I not deal with you as the potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If it seems like you just can't give up whatever it is, you have to give up. Remember, can I not do it, the Lord says in Jeremiah 18? Can't I make you into what I want you to be? Smash these old molds. Smash the worldly patterns in your life. You know what they are. And some of you, they're not obviously wicked things. They're not things that your neighbors would look at and go, boy, you need to really get rid of that habit. But you know that they're not what God has for you. Some of you know that you're doing things, you're still fitting into molds that you know aren't actually befitting for a Christian. And so do I. We all have areas in our lives like this. But we've held on to these things Perhaps because so many people around us, maybe even other Christians, have the same perfections in their clay. And so it's easy just to say, well, that's the way people are. I'm going to conform. I'm going to conform to my own habits, my own bad habits, my own lusts, and I'll just keep going the way I am. God says, no, even if everybody else is that way, even if the imperfection seems normal, don't conform, transform. Maybe for you it's gossip. Maybe for you it's murmuring about your circumstances. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's covetousness for some of us. Maybe it's wasting money for some of us. Poor work habits. Maybe it's wasting our time on inane television or internet. Maybe some of you have a problem with white lies. Maybe it's gluttony for you. Maybe it's addiction to technology. You just can't put the phone down or can't get yourself off the internet at night. Whatever it is, these imperfections, though they may be shared with so many people around you, really are imperfections, aren't they? You know the things in your life that God wants you to throw aside. And I do too. I could go back through that list and pinpoint some of those things even in my own life. And it's easy to just pass them by and to say, well, that's normal. That's just the way people are. They're imperfect. But God says, don't conform to normal. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God is pleading with us this morning through the Apostle Paul and saying to us, don't be like everyone else. Break the mold. Go against the flow. Swim upstream. Lay aside every encumbrance that entangles you and impedes your spiritual process. Don't be conformed to this world. Be different. Be transformed into God's holy pattern. So I just ask you to ask yourself and to ask God, where am I being just like my neighbor's? Where am I conforming to what I've always done or what everyone else does in our culture? Where do I need to be really transformed, changed? And when you get the answer, will you take your little lump of clay and put it on God's wheel and allow him to reshape you as the potter sees fit? I hope that you will. But now let me ask a question of this passage. We've thought about conforming and transforming, but the question then is, how does God reshape us? What does Paul say about this process of being transformed? How does God do it? And what can we do as we, as we allow ourselves to be transformed? What can we do to allow ourselves to be transformed into a holy vessel in the potter's hands? How do we take our lump of clay, in other words, and put it up on the potter's wheel? What does that look like? Well, Paul says it's really all a matter of the mind. The mind. Did you notice that? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you become different? How do you put your clay on the potter's wheel? How are you transformed? By renewing your 
mind. It's about your mind. He's saying stop thinking after the old patterns and start thinking in new patterns. Thinking, mind, brain work, mental activity. And this is really one of our biggest problems, I think, as American Christians. Maybe it's our biggest problem among genuine Christians in America is that we often fail to think Christianly. Now, we wouldn't think that we fail to think Christianly, but we are so surrounded by secular atheistic thinking that we don't even realize how bad it is. We're like fish that have lived their whole lives swimming around in sewer water. Fish that live in sewer water their whole lives never realize that they're not healthy, do they? They don't realize the water is as cloudy as it is because they've never swam in the clear water of the ocean or of the lake. Well, that's American Christianity in many ways. We are so used to the secular ways of thinking that are around us, whether it's in politics or science or education or even church strategy. We're so used to people relying on their own wisdom and their own way of doing things and their own intelligence that we don't realize how often we're swimming in that same set of mental and spiritual waters. We often think about things, big things and little things, just like our neighbors think about them our neighbors who don't know God. If we know God and our neighbors don't know God, then that should change the way we think about everything. What Paul is saying here is the most important area of transformation, the most important area where we need to stop conforming to the pattern of this world is in the realm of our minds. Stop thinking the way everyone else thinks, he's saying. Instead, Get a new perspective on things, a new way of thinking. Renew your minds. And this transformation of and renewing of your mind is key to so many other transformations. That's why he says here, this is so important. I'm going to put it right at the head of this passage. Submit your bodies to the Lord and renew your minds. If you can get your mind right, you know what will follow? Your emotions and your will. And your actions. Why is it for Christians who seem to know better that our emotions and our wills and our actions often go so far astray? Much of the time it's because we don't think rightly. It's not that we don't know in our minds what's true, but we don't think rightly about things. In other words, if I believe wrong things or I allow my mind to embrace unbiblical ideas or even if I allow my mind to wander down sinful tracks even when I know better, if I allow my mind to think in the wrong direction, my emotions will follow, and my will will follow, and my actions will follow. So much of our sin and so much of our righteousness begins in our minds. Now, let me just give you an example of how this works. Let's say that your boss is not treating you fairly. It's not just that you're upset about it. He's being legitimately unreasonable towards you. There are two tracks down which your mind can go. One is the track of conformity. One is to think about the situation just like all your other co-workers would think. To say to yourself, I deserve better than this. I'm more valuable than this joker realizes. And I don't know how long I can put up with this. And I'm just sick and I'm tired. And a whole host of other sentences that begin with the word I. That's how the world would think about a situation like that. Now what comes out of a self-focused way of thinking about that kind of problem? For some of us, it would be angry emotions that then lead to angry words and angry actions and hasty words and hasty actions. For others of us, it would be self-pity. 
that would come out of that. And that self-pity would lead us to think, well, I deserve a little break. And so I'm going to overeat. I'm going to murmur. I'm going to go to pornography. I'm going to use one of these things as a salve to make me feel better for being mistreated. And for some of us, we respond to a situation like this with deep discouragement. And we start to worry and to doubt God and to fret every day. But do you see how our sinful emotions and actions began with a wrong way of thinking about my job and about my boss? Just like everyone else thinks, I'm thinking beginning with I. I've conformed my mind to the way the world thinks and the way my own sinful nature thinks. And therefore, my emotions and my will and my actions are conformed to the way the world thinks as well. But then there's a different, radically different possible outcome, isn't there? to the troubles with your boss. The second possibility is not to be conformed and to be like everyone else, but to be transformed and to think biblically. To say to yourself, how does the Bible teach me to respond when I'm treated unfairly or when I'm suffering? And the answer would be not with sentences that begin with I, but with looking to God and seeing things from His perspective. So instead of saying to myself, I deserve better than this, I'm saying to myself, What do I really deserve? I deserve judgment. So it's really a lot better than I thought it was. Let me be thankful that I'm even alive and I have a job and I'm able to work and that I'm not in hell. Let me be thankful because of Jesus. I have heaven where someday I'll rest from all my labors and I'll never have to stress out about work again. That would be a biblical way to think. Or instead of thinking, I don't know how long I can put up with this knucklehead at work, I should tell myself, you know what? Maybe he is a knucklehead, but God is working all things together for my good, even my knucklehead boss. Yes, my boss is being unfair. Maybe God will get me out of this situation soon, and I would praise him for it. But as long as he leaves me here, I'm going to consider this to be for my good. Now, that's a whole different way of thinking than the first way, isn't it? And if you train yourself to think like that, to think, how can I complain? How can any man living complain, the Bible says, in view of his sins? And to think, God is working all this for my good. Even this difficult situation, he's going to work it out for my good. If I can train myself to think like that, do you know what will happen? My emotions and my will and my actions will follow the way that I've trained myself to think biblically. If I train myself to think the Bible's thoughts, my self-pity will die away. And so will the sinful salves that I try to use to make myself feel better. My anger, if I think biblically, won't spring up nearly so easily. And neither will the foolish actions that angry people often take. If I think biblically, discouragement will be tempered with confidence in God's sovereignty that He really is in control. And in place of all these difficult things and these bad emotions and these wrong actions, in place of those will spring up gratitude, perhaps prayer for my boss that God would save his soul, a teachable spirit in the midst of difficulty, the ability to press on, maybe an attitude even towards my boss that will change his way of thinking towards me. Now, there may be a time, just, just as an aside, there may be a time to address these things with your boss, or if it's your spouse, with your spouse, or if it's your kids, with your kids. There may be a time to look for a different solution to the problem, but not before we've thought biblically about the problem instead of just responding like everyone else would respond. Now, that's just one example. Many other examples could be given. 
The point is, huge transformations in our emotions, in our wills, in our actions very often begin in the battleground of our minds. If we can just train our minds to think biblically about disappointment or child-rearing or relationships or money or sex or possessions or time or food or whatever it is, if we can train ourselves to think biblically about those things, so much sin can be avoided and so much righteousness and peace can be enjoyed in its place. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says that if we'll do these things, if we will renew our minds, if we will train ourselves to think biblically, we will be able, quote, to prove or approve what the will of God is. What's he saying? The more you renew your mind, the more you learn to think biblically, the more you will be able to prove, understand, love, live out the will of God. The more you think rightly, the more you're body and your will will move along rightly with God's will. Being in your right mind biblically is what allows you to conform to the will of God in every other area. That's what he's saying. That's why Bible-believing churches, incidentally, ought to give so much time to preaching and teaching of the Bible. Because yes, when we come to worship, our emotions ought to be engaged, our bodies ought to be engaged, but the only reason our emotions and our bodies can be engaged rightly in corporate worship, or in the worship that we do by serving God every day. The only way our emotions and bodies can engage in worshiping God rightly is if our minds are trained to think rightly about God and the world and ourselves. And so these opportunities that we have to fill our minds with the Word of God are vitally important. This isn't just a a lesson. This is a lesson to help you renew your mind so that everything else in your life is better. And your own opportunities to renew your minds daily in the Scriptures are vitally important for that reason as well. It's as we renew our minds that we stop conforming to this world's patterns, that we begin to be transformed into the image of God, that we begin to be able to discern and obey and love the will of God in our emotions and with our wills and through our actions. So if there's one thing that I can instill this morning, if there's one thing that you would remember this morning, it's that Paul is putting before our eyes the vital importance of learning to think biblically. Not to just react, but to think about every situation the way the Bible thinks. To recognize those areas where we are just like the world to recognize those parts of our lives where we could actually step back and say, you know, it never occurred to me to ask what the Bible says about this thing in my life. And if, if we started to do that, we would probably be surprised about how many things we do and how many ways we think that it's never occurred to us to go back and say, what does the Bible say about this? The only way for us to be transformed in our wills and our emotions and our actions is to learn to think Biblically, Be transformed, he says, by the renewing of your minds. And that word renewing is important. Let's just hover there for a moment. It's not just that we need our minds to be made new initially when we become Christians. That's true, of course. And for those of us who believe, our minds and our hearts have been made new at the point when we became a Christian. But that's not exactly what Paul is speaking about here. Here he's not talking about your mind being made new the first time. He's talking about renewing, making it new over and over again. To make something renewed is to take something that's already been new and to keep making it new again and again. 
You can think about a car engine, right? You can't simply say to yourself, well, when I bought the car, it had new plugs and wires and filters and so on. And so now I'm at 200,000 miles, but I, I still have new, a new engine. No, you have to renew the engine, right? Your engine has to be constantly renewed. Or on another plane, you can think about the love of a husband for his wife. Some of you have heard me tell the story before of the man whose wife was very upset that she, he never, she never felt like her husband loved her. And they sat down with the counselor and told him these things. And he said, well, I told her I loved her on the day we got married. And I figured that stands unless I tell her otherwise. That doesn't work very well, does it, ladies? You have to renew your affirmations of affection constantly in a love relationship, much more often than the oil filter men. So keep that in mind. This is, the way, this is the way lots of things in the world work. They're new, but then they have to be renewed and refurbished and reaffirmed. And so it is with our minds. Our minds have been made new in Christ, but we have to continually renew them. That's why we meet every week. That's why we read our Bibles every day, so that every day we have a chance to lube the system, to renew our minds. So you can't take Romans 12.2 and say to yourself, okay, I heard that today. We did Romans 12.2. Renew your minds. Now I've got it for the rest of my life. I'll never struggle to think biblically again because we covered this once. It doesn't work that way, does it? Nor with any other passage that we would say. Well, we covered this once. Now everybody has it. We never need to go back again. No, we will need to come back again to this over and over again. And we may not come to it for a while in this exact verse, but I guarantee you that we will run against the same concepts over and over again as we work our way through the Scriptures. Our minds need to constantly be told the same things over and over again. They need constant tune-ups. They need constantly renewed in God's Word because we're so prone to forget God's Word or to set it aside or to ignore what we know. Be transformed, he says, by the renewing of your mind. Learn to think biblically in every situation. And let me just say personally that I often struggle with this. I need to hear Romans 12 too as much as anyone. I struggle just like you do with murmuring or worrying or being frustrated or self-pity or anger or whatever it is. And when those things come into my life, just like you often probably go to certain things to try to salve those feelings. You, you go to food or you go to the internet or whatever it is to make you feel better about how you're feeling inside. I struggle with those same things. And the root of these problems in my life and in yours is that I'm not thinking biblically. So on a Sunday, a sermon goes really poorly. And instead of going home and telling myself that, hey, it's God's word, not my delivery that really has the power to help people I often allow myself to go into deep discouragement because I haven't stopped and thought biblically about what just went wrong. Or the, the auditorium is not full and I can go home and think, boy, I wish that there had been more people there. And instead of saying, you know what, God says in his word, he's not constrained to save by many or by few. I can just allow myself to go into disappointment or an interruption comes into my schedule. Instead of telling myself that God works all things together for good, even interruptions, I can allow myself to be frustrated or worried that I'm not going to get it all done or what have you. And I can sometimes spend whole days in deep discouragement and lack of faith because I fail to stop and to think about some problem in my life through the lens of Scripture. And it can work the other way around. It may not be a problem in your life. It may be a blessing in your life, but you don't think about it biblically and you turn it into an idol. 
all sorts of problems spring up when we fail to think biblically. And so I'm constantly needing to come back to this book and to renew my mind and to train myself to think the way the Bible thinks. And I'm sure that you would say the same thing. In fact, let me just take you back for a moment to those areas that I questioned you about earlier. Remember I gave you a long list of areas where maybe you need to be transformed? Gossip, murmuring, worry, covetousness, wasting of money, poor waste habit, poor work habits, time wasted on inane television and internet, white lies, gluttony, addiction to technology. Maybe it was something else for you. What was it that struck your conscience? Perhaps something on that list, perhaps something I didn't mention. What was that area that I asked you to think about where you know that you need to stop being like this world and begin to be transformed? Whatever the area was, if you'll think it out this afternoon, I will be willing to bet that in many cases you will discover that your selfishness or your pattern of sin has deep roots in wrong ways of thinking. The reason why you're doing wrong things is because you've allowed yourself to think the way this world thinks, the way that your neighbors might think in some area or other who don't know the Lord. And so you've begun to become in your actions like people who don't know the Lord. And you say, why are my actions so messed up? Why can't I get over this? You're not thinking biblically. You're just responding. You're reacting You're conforming instead of transforming. And so what you need to do and what I need to do in those situations is twofold. When we see our actions conforming to the world, yes, we need, as Jesus says, to cut off the hand that causes us to sin. We need to put physical measures in place against those actual physical sins that we may be doing. That's important. But then also we need to allow God to begin to change the wrong ways of thinking that led to those sins in the first place. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I hope you see how important that there is. There's so much writing on Romans 12 too. If we can learn to think more Christianly, we will be able to live more Christianly. Now let me say one final thing, and that's this, that this lifestyle that Paul is calling us to is a happy thing. It's a good thing. It's not a drudgery. Now, I know that what Paul is asking us here and what we've been talking about this morning is rigorous if you're actually going to do it. If you're actually going to think about everything biblically, that's going to require a lot of attention, a lot of mental effort and concentration. But what I want to say before we finish is it's worth it. It's a glorious, happy way to live if we can do it. Now, think it out with me. We're training our minds to think biblically, to think rightly. But why are we doing that? We're doing it so we can be transformed from a base lifestyle to a holy one. So that we can begin to be who God would have us to be. So that we can, as Paul puts it, prove what the will of God is. And do what the will of God is. We're transforming our minds so we can do God's will. But did you notice what Paul says about God's will there at the end of the verse? Paul calls God's will... That which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. And it's those things in God's sight, yes, but it's also good and acceptable and perfect in the sight of those who live it out. If you will begin to live God's will out, you'll say, I can't believe I ever tried to do it another way. This is good. This is acceptable. This is perfect. 
In fact, I've never met a person who is truly doing the will of God and becoming more like Jesus and thinking biblically and training themselves in godliness who said, boy, I'm doing all this, but it's really a drag. It's a tedium. I've never met anybody like this. I've never met anybody who thought that doing God's will in their life wasn't actually good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I know that there are people who think that God's will is boring and restrictive, that holiness is not good and it's not acceptable. But those are always unholy people. Have you noticed that? The people who are always carping at God's law and saying that it's really uh, irksome and it's really restrictive are always the people who aren't keeping it. So how do they know? what it's like to keep God's law and how I would actually feel about it. It's always people on the outside looking in who think that godliness must be really drab and colorless. They're like children who won't eat a certain kind of food because I don't like mushrooms. Have you ever tasted mushrooms? No, I just don't like them. So that's why I haven't tasted them. That doesn't make sense, does it? Now, you may not like mushrooms, but the point is you better not like them because you've actually tasted them. And you can't say that doing the will of God is irksome, that it's boring, that it's drab, unless you've actually tried it. But the people who actually venture to be transformed by the renewing of their minds and to prove what the will of God is and to live in that will find that living in that will and doing the hard mental work that makes it possible to do so, that all those things are good and acceptable and perfect. Why would I ever want to go back? Constantly putting your mind on the potter's wheel to be reshaped and challenged and reformed so that your life might be shaped into the image of Jesus is actually the happiest lifestyle in the world if we will do it. And how I wish that I could believe that as easily as I can preach that. How I wish that in the moments when I'm tempted to sin, I could remind myself that holiness really is happiness. That God's will really is good and acceptable and perfect and far better than the thrill that I might get out of this sin, whatever it may be. I wish I could remember that. It's just one more reason why I need to renew my mind and why you do as well. God has shown us great love and he has shown us tender mercies as we read in verse 1, hasn't he? The mercies of God in sending his own son to die for our sins, to rise from the dead on our behalf so that we might walk in newness of life. God has shown us great mercy. He's given us a great gift. And surely he would not go to all the effort and the expense of giving us such a wonderful gift, his only son. Surely he wouldn't give us all of that and go to all that trouble to give us that gift only for that gift to bring us into a lifestyle of boredom and restriction and gloom that would make us hate him instead of love him. Does that make any sense that God would send his son into the world to rescue us and bring us into a lifestyle that actually make us angry with God? No, he sent his son into the world to save us and bring us into a lifestyle that would make us happy in him. God's ways are the best ways. God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. And therefore, let's not be any longer conformed to this world. Let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may be able to prove what the will of God really is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect.